Well, as we come near the end of the story of King David, I thought it would be good now to pause and let's do a little bit of reflection. King David, what do you think? Good guy or bad guy? (laughs) I mean, you see where I'm going with this, right? It's tough. How can you answer that? King David, good guy or bad guy? I mean, on the one hand, it's so full of faith and the little shepherd boy from Bethlehem taking down Goliath, forgiving Saul when it would have been so easy to take the throne and his kindness to Jonathan and the covenant friendship and the the love he shows for Mephibosheth. On the other hand, it's hard to get past the adultery and murder, right? Right? Now, while you're still pondering that, and I hope you're pondering that, King David, good guy or bad guy, while you're pondering that, let me throw this uh, into the mix. And it's something that's so obvious, and yet I think many people, as they're considering this, they don't even begin to think about. While you're thinking about King David, good guy or bad guy, while all this is going on, King David is a believer, child of God. Now, go ahead. Good guy or bad guy? this believer. Think about the implications of that for a second. He is someone who is in a relationship with God, a child of God, and not just any relationship with God. I think it's fair to say he has an intimate relationship with God. Look at the Psalms, right? So here you got a believer with a relationship with God who is capable of incredible good and unspeakable bad. So it's like, Preacher, are are you telling me that even believers with a close relationship with God can uh, be at times incredibly good and unspeakably bad? Yeah. So you're telling me you can't just categorize somebody good or bad and, and, and be done with it? I wonder how many people, if we just did a man on the street interview, how many people never graduate from such a simplistic understanding of how we categorize people? And, and, and King David should upend a lot of our bad theology. A lot of folks never graduate past what you might think as a kid. Well, the Christians are the good people, and I guess if you're not a Christian, you're a bad person. Do you realize how anti-biblical that all is? The Bible never whitewashes the sins of human beings, and, and, and it's almost like you want to say, hey, I'm not a category, I'm a long story. So what do you do when someone has disappointed you or you've disappointed yourself, especially when that person who disappointed you was a believer? Because that's where a lot of folks are at, that they might say something like, you know, I've been hurt and I could get over the hurt and the disappointment. I've been hurt by another person. I could get over that. But what hurt so much, what stung so deeply is this was a person who was a believer, So what do you do? Let's just land there. What do you do when uh, uh, you are disappointed by someone, especially, or you've disappointed yourself, especially when you yourself or that person was a child of God, hurt by a believer? Well, today's text is going to give us a way forward. We've got to learn to look through, and I would even say look beyond the disappointment of Jesus' followers to see, almost by contrast, the glory and the beauty and the splendor of Jesus himself. So we've got to look past the disappointment of Jesus' followers to see the beauty of Jesus himself. And so all I want to do in this sermon is one thing. (laughs) 
Let me tell you about my Jesus. I want to glorify King Jesus, and here's how we're going to do it. I want to glorify King Jesus by looking through and beyond King David. We're going to look today at the return of King David, and I want you to see over and over again how the return of King Jesus is better than the return of King David. And we're going to see it almost by contrast. Now, this insight that the, 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 the flaws and the, the, he's got some good stuff but never quite gets it right is meant to make us long for how Jesus always gets it right. The disappointment of David is to make us long for the king that will never disappoint. And we, this uh, uh, insight uh, struck me. It was really help, helped me in a sermon by Colin Smith. He's a pastor out in the Chicago area. He has a large uh, teaching ministry on the radio. But that's where it resonated with me. And I'll be using his outline with my own modifications. But I thought it was so smart the way he worked through the text. And he, he, he's basically saying when you're disappointed, you look through King David, who is complicated, to the king who never disappoints. To see by way of contrast how King Jesus never disappoints. So he does this, uh, and if you'll meet me in 2 Samuel 19, we're going to see King David is returning as king, and he meets, as he's going back into Jerusalem, these three characters that he met on the way out of Jerusalem when he was fleeing a few chapters ago. If you're just joining us for the series, let's get you caught up in the story. If you've been with us in the series, you may be helped by getting caught up on the story. <laughs> David, you know, is king in Jerusalem. Got it? King David. He's in Jerusalem. After his big downfall, his family just implodes. His hurt and angry son Absalom gets up an army and he makes a run at the throne. And it looks like he's going to win. He's going to kill David. They're going to kill David and Absalom will be the new king. So David must flee Jerusalem. Can you picture it? David and the the few that were loyal to him leave his own city, leave Jerusalem, cross the Jordan River, flee, run for their life, and it looks like Absalom will be king. But we learn in chapter 18 there's a great battle. The battle happens to take place in the forest. Superior numbers don't turn out uh, to uh, be the advantage they thought it would. And wouldn't you know it, David, uh, his army is able to defeat the armies of Absalom, and 20,000 men die in the forest of Ephraim, and uh, including Absalom. David is so sad. He's happy about the victory, of course, but he's so sad about his son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, would that I had died instead of you. So much so that his soldiers are even, they're even worried. They don't want to celebrate because the king is in mourning. But the king must return now to claim his throne. What do you do after a failed coup? Like, what happens now? Do you just go back back to the guy you had? You know? Like, like is, is David, I mean... Our head's going to roll? Is justice going to be doled out? Now, can you picture it? He's got to cross back over the Jordan River and go back into Jerusalem where, where chapters ago he was running for his life. Now he's got to come back. What, what's going to happen? Well, that's where we pick up the, the, the story in verse uh, 15. Meet me in 2 Samuel 19, 15. So the king came back to the Jordan, and it's the southern tribe. This is David's own, the tribe that David was from, the tribe of Judah. They're the ones who decide, okay, we're going to escort the king back in. This is like an inauguration, I guess re-inauguration parade for David. And so he chooses a very symbolic crossing point as he's coming back. So here we go, verse 15. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah, there, there it is, that southern tribe, came to Gilgal to meet the king. And to bring the king over the Jordan. 
Gilgal's very strategic. David is uh, pretty wise here. He, he uses uh, Gilgal, that's the place where Joshua, that's the place they first crossed the Jordan to go into the promised land. So he uses this very symbolic place and they're gathered there and now the return of the king and there's so many questions. Do you just go back to being king? Will you, roll, will you, will you deal justice uh, to those who uh, so much has been taken in the rebellion and the revolt of Absalom? Like I said, are you gonna, are you gonna take out vengeance? Are you gonna, what about those who were loyal to you when, every, when the political winds were all blowing favorably toward Absalom? Hmm? When it would have been very easy to be like, David, David who? We're with Absalom. Because you realize the writing's on the wall and you better get with Absalom. What if at great personal cost, what if you stayed loyal to David? Would you be rewarded? I mean, David can't just kill everybody that rebelled against him. What good is a king without a kingdom? So what's going to happen? What will the return of the king mean? And on this ceremonial march back into the city, he meets these three characters. And each one demonstrates how the return of King Jesus will be so much better than the return of King David. Got it? Each of these little vignettes shows us how the return of King Jesus will be better than the return of King David. The first case, Shimei. Shimei shows us the difference between probation and pardon. So first, we're going to look at probation versus pardon. What's the difference in those two things? The case of Shimei. Well, you remember Shimei. If you don't remember Shimei from last Sunday, he is a nasty character. Do you recall? As David, do you remember him? As David was being forced to flee Jerusalem, he's probably not going to live through the night, depressed, weeping. It says they're climbing up the Mount of Olives, crying as they're going. And when things can't get any worse, this guy shows up just to throw rocks at David, and he curses him and flings dust as he goes. Do you have people in your life that no matter when things are absolutely, when you're drowning, they're willing to hand you a brick? When things can't get any worse, Shimei is flinging dust and cursing, you bloodthirsty man, you know, you no gooder, you've got what's coming to you. Now, do you remember Abishai, David's faithful bodyguard? Do you remember him? Hey, it would be great if Shimei were separated from Shimei's head. I can handle that. I can do that. That will take me two seconds. David's like, no, no, honestly. He's cursing, but listen, I, I deserve this. You know, David shows this humility. and Anyway, it's a remarkable story. But he's cursing the Lord's anointed, okay? And uh, 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 now that Absalom's dead, David is restored. What is Shimei going to do? Shimei is doing all this because he is certain that David is not even going to last the night. And he not only lasts the night, but it turns out he's now re uh, returning as king. So Shimei races to the front of the King David Return to Power Inauguration Parade. Verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried. I bet he did hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And this is very wise. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. Ah, see, you see what he's doing. David, you need all the friends you can get right now. The, the, the kingdom is on shaky ground. Here's a thousand men, and if um, you cut my head off, you'll probably have to cut all their heads off, and eventually you won't have any uh, kingdom, you know, you won't have any subjects left with heads. So, uh, you know, the thousand men are meant to be like, see, it's not just me. He's a snake, but even snakes want to live. So look what he does. Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. Isn't that something? Got the scene? Remember earlier, he was flinging dirt on David. Now he flings himself into the dirt at the feet of David. Oh, how the tables have turned. And he said to the king, 
let not my Lord hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong? I, you've probably forgotten. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I did wrong on the, on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. Can you imagine this? Listen, I know I cursed you to your face. I cursed the Lord's anointed. I threw rocks at you. I tried to stone you. And, um, I, but don't take it personally. <laughs> you know. It comes out and says it. Your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I've, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the King. Now, what's he saying? Judah has met you down here, but where are the northern tribes? I just want the record to reflect. I am first in line to welcome you back, King. Doesn't that count for anything? That count for something? Now, here's what I love. Verse 21. you got to love people in your life that are so consistent. Abishai... Remember him? Kind of chop happy. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? In other words, now can I kill him? Had to wait chapters for this. But David said, what what is with you? What do I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? In other words, he's saying, what's with you, man? No one is being beheaded. (laughs) And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Okay, I have set this whole message up on the premise that what David does is a contrast and why when Jesus comes, it'll be so much better. And here, if you are a very savvy listener already, you may be a little thrown off because you may say, wait a minute, you said it's by contrast. This actually looks pretty good. And at first glance, it does. At first glance, it does look pretty good. Looks like David's on the right track. There's a lot to like about this. Uh, for one thing, he doesn't take vengeance when it he would have been certainly justified to do. Um, if, if you, that verse 22 is uh, uh, just, just worth noting a couple things. One is... Um, Uh, David's line, do I not know that I'm this day king? And I just want to point this out. I don't want to spend a long time on it. I don't want to belabor it. But I do think it's interesting. He's saying, this guy's no threat. That's an insight into human nature. It's hard to put your finger on, but, but, you know, Shimei is no threat. Look, look, look. Look at the bottom. For do I know that I am this day king over Israel? (sighs) David was able to act the way he was because he wasn't threatened by Shimei. He's secure. I'm king. Often, isn't it true? Often we are cruel to those we feel threatened by. They threaten something about it. We're a little insecure and they hit on that point and so we feel the need to take them down a peg. Oh, how do you get to a place where you're not threatened? Trust the gospel. When you're insecure, simply ask yourself, what am I securing myself to? That's why you feel insecure. You've secured yourself to shifting sand. The other thing I would point out, that word adversary in Hebrew, why would you be an adversary to me? The word adversary in Hebrew is satan, (laughs) S-A-T-A-N. Yeah, that's where we get the word Satan. It means adversary, accuser. And I think it's interesting that David here is forgiving Shimei, and he's got an adversary who's condemning. So do you. You've been forgiven by the king who is secure in his throne, and yet, there is still an adversary roaring like a, a, a prowling lion, right? And he's casting accusations and condemnation. Well, anyway, I didn't want to uh, 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 belabor that, but 
At first glance, my point is simply, you might think, well, that's a lot to celebrate. The return of King David looks pretty good. Well, uh, what's Paul Harvey's thing? The rest of the story. If you read the rest of the story, it's not, uh, not good. If you keep reading, David is not being completely honest here. You can picture him saying, Shimei, you shall not die. And under his breath, today. Uh, David, look, David is he's a politician. He knows he needs a 1,000 men. His approval ratings could really use a boost. He's got a kingdom to repair. He doesn't have time to deal with this, but he won't forget. He basically puts him under surveillance. If you look ahead to the end of David's life, with his last words, on his deathbed, David calls Solomon in and gives him this chapter of final instructions, and mostly it's here's who to reward and here's who to look out for. I've never forgotten. Don't forgive. And, and if you want... Oh, let's just look at it. At the end of his life, on his deathbed, 1 Kings chapter 2, these are literally his last words. He's telling Solomon, and there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurain. Oh, yeah, I thought you forgave that guy. I thought you let it go. Who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. Okay, still bitter. And then he recalls that time he came groveling at the Jordan, but when he, he, and he remembers it in crystal clear detail. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. <clears throat> now, you've got to read between the lines here. This is incredible. This is almost like, like mafia stuff. Of course, I swore I would not put him to death. <laughs> now, therefore, verse 9, do not hold him guiltless. You're a wise man. You'll know what you ought to do to him. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I promised I couldn't kill him. But you're a smart guy. <laughs> and you shall bring his gray head down with blood, the shield. Next verse. Then David slept with his fathers. Those are his dying words, okay? So what he offers, what's my point? At first glance, you're like, oh, he lets Shimei go. He lets him go. No, 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 What he offers is probation. Sure enough, if you want to know the rest of the story, Solomon keeps him under house arrest. He says, all right, I got my eye on you. You can't leave Jerusalem. Shimei leaves Jerusalem, and when he does, sure enough, Solomon kills him. So he's under house arrest. He's under probation. What's my point? There's something a little hollow about the repentant Shimei when David says, it's okay, you're forgiven. He's not. He's given probation, but not a pardon. Can you see how this is meant to make us long for the king who when he returns for every repentant sinner, you won't just be given a probation to be paid for later. You'll be given a pardon. Oh, let me tell you about my Jesus. Ain't no sinner that he can't save. And the Shimeis of the world at best. And King David, the point that the Bible makes is King David's about the best the humans are going to get in the Old Testament. And even that great king, oh, he can't do the, what King Jesus can do. He can't pardon. My point, pardon is better than probation. Can you imagine how terrible it would be if all Jesus could give a sinner was a stay of execution? What do they call that, a suspended sentence? How dreadful if we came to Jesus and repented and he said, all right, well, you're on parole. One false move and your plea deal is off the table. Who of us would make it? There's no way. You've got to prove yourself that you're really sincere about these parole, uh, this probation. But when Jesus 
offers forgiveness. He pays for that sin, and he paid for it in full. That's why from the cross he said, it is finished. That's why Psalm 103 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his love is for us. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. You're not under house arrest. I, I, I want to uh, make absolutely certain everybody hears me, especially those in our congregation who continually struggle with guilt and a cloud of condemnation that hangs over you. You are not under house arrest. You're free. When Jesus says, if the Son of Man shall set you free, you are free indeed. What's he talking about? In no small measure, he's talking about being free from condemnation, free from the accusations of the adversary. So walk in that freedom. You have pardon. King David and humans maybe can offer probation, but only King Jesus. He, he, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. The New Testament book of Peter writes, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then Peter quotes Isaiah, and by his wounds you have been healed. Pardon is better than probation. One more word of application. He said, preacher, you said we had three of these vignettes. Now, come on, the clock's ticking. I know, I know, we'll get there. <laughs> One more word, though, on Shimei. You will have occasionally, you will occasionally, there'll be times in your life where in this story, you're the King David, and you're going to have a choice. There will be times in your life when someone comes to you and truly repents. I'm not talking about somebody who sins against you and had a lick of repentance, and that's a whole other sermon for another day. I'm talking about when someone has sinned against you and they come and repent, and they're asking for, they're saying sorry, they messed up, they're they're coming to you and asking for forgiveness. You have a choice. Will you King David them or King Jesus them? Will you offer them probation or will you offer pardon? You'll have that choice. And I'll tell you, pardon is better than probation, okay? You can offer them a stay of execution or you can forgive them and love keeps no record of wrongs. Second character. We've met him, uh, we met him a few times and it's Mephibosheth. And that illustrates, Shimei was pardon is better than protection. With Mephibosheth, we see the difference between compensation versus restoration. And I think, in fact, that's Colin Smith's exact wording of that one. Compensation versus restoration. Now this is a word to all who have suffered loss. How will the return of the king restore what's been taken from you? It could be through illness or it could be through unfairness. It could be that somebody lied about you or somebody harmed you or somebody did you wrong and you have suffered loss. What do you do? Mephibosheth. Uh, You guys remember Mephibosheth? Uh, We meet him back in chapter 9. This is Jonathan's son. David was faithful to the covenant promise he made with Jonathan. And so he asked, is there anybody from the old regime of Saul? When David becomes king, anybody from the old regime? And they're like, yeah, because you're going to kill him. He says, no, actually I'm not. I'm going to show kindness. What a beautiful act of grace. He does two things for Mephibosheth. One, he uh, invites him in to sit at the king's table. And two, he makes him independently wealthy. Land back in the day was wealth. Because that was the income generator. That was the, 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 the yeah. so he gives him all the lands that belong to Saul, gives him to Mephibosheth, and then gives him Saul's old servant, now becomes Mephibosheth's servant, Ziba. And he's got a big family and he's got a whole staff. Ziba is supposed to farm the land, produce the income, but it all goes to Mephibosheth. Incredible setup, incredible gift, beautiful act of grace. Well, 
When David was fleeing the city for his life, those who were loyal to David fled with him. Anyone disloyal could just stay back in the city and um, become subjects of Absalom. Got it? If you're staying back in the city, that was pretty much your way of saying, you know what? (laughs) We don't need King David. Absalom's fine with us. So on the way out of the city, who should stop him but this character Ziba? Ziba, remember the servant, the, the clever and crafty and something about, I think when we met Ziba back in chapter 9, I described him, my exact words was Ziba was sus. I stand by that. He shows up to meet David this time. <clears throat> oh, on the way out of town, he's, uh, David's got this ragtag bunch and the Bible says that he gives um, uh, basically power bars and Gatorade. I mean, you can read about it. It's like fig cakes and raisins and wine and all this stuff. But it's, it's, it's the modern equivalent. He gives him power bars and Gatorade and gets him and some donkeys. David's grateful. And he asks him, well, that's great and all. Where, where's your master? Where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't he riding out? And Ziba, ever the opportunist, lies through his teeth and tells King David, yeah, about Mephibosheth. He said he wanted to stay back in Jerusalem and was happy that Absalom's the new king because he thinks this civil war is all going to melt the kingdom apart and he'll be restored back to the throne of Saul. So do whatever you want with that, but grimy. And in that moment, David makes a snap decision based on an unsubstantiated claim. Now remember, the guy giving you the Gatorade and the power bars has told you the story. You are, you are at stress maximum. You're fleeing the city. You don't even think you're going to survive the night. And he says, you know what? So he's going to make some last-minute decisions as king. You know what? All the land I gave to Mephibosheth, all of it's now yours. Can you believe somebody made a snap decision based on an unsubstantiated claim? You know, living in this town... Sometimes I wonder if uh, people will sometimes take one unsubstantiated claim and assume they've got the whole narrative. Have you noticed that? How many times has folks gotten it wrong and they get all bent out of shape and mad because they heard one unsubstantiated claim and just assumed they had the whole narrative? It wasn't until later that they met the other side of the story. And then, you know what? When you get both sides of the story, you know what you got? You got about a fourth of the narrative. Who knows, right? There's his side, there's her side, and there's the truth. But David makes a snap decision based on one unsubstantiated claim, and he got it wrong. So now they're preparing for this triumphal entry, and who should appear but Mephibosheth? And it turns out Mephibosheth has not been awaiting the throne. He's been in mourning for the king. Look at verse 24. And Mephibosheth, son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. You do not want Mephibosheth to be on the middle seat on your flight. When, you know, it's terrible shape. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Far from being a usurper, he's been mourning for his king to return. This business about he didn't clip his toenails and his beard was long. The point is you can't grow a massively nasty beard or big long toenails. You can't do that overnight. It proves he's been in mourning contrary to what that liar Ziba said. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? I think David's piecing it together. He answered, My lord, O king... Ziba lied. My servant deceived me. Your servant said to him, I'll saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. In other words, he he took the donkeys. And sure enough, you go back and look. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. 
He says, look, I don't deserve anything. I'm just glad you're back. But my Lord, the king's like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. I do not have time to preach, but one day I'll come back to you, verse 28. What a sermon. What a sermon for every Christian to be able to say at the top of their lungs, I was a dead man walking and you carried me to your table. I don't deserve a thing. Every day is a gift. Entitlement just drains out. Maybe that's good enough. I'll count that as the sermon. For what further right have I than to cry to the king? Everything was taken from me by Ziba's lies, but it's your call, king. I'm just happy you're back. And David does something extraordinarily unsatisfactory to me. And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Does that seem right to you? It doesn't seem right to me because it's not right. Everything's been taken by this liar. But when the king comes, you get half of it back. That ain't right. Someone lied about you and took everything. So here, you get like, ah, you get a 50-50 split. Why would David do that? Because David knows he needs an ally. Ziba is a liar, but he's a useful liar. And he's got a lot of uh, uh, people that can help him. And he knows he needs allies right now. So the best David can do is compensate a little bit for injustice. Oh, but aren't you glad? There is a coming king who can do more than just compensate. He can restore. He can do more than this half-hearted attempt at some compensation. To everyone who has suffered loss, you've lost health, you've lost loved ones, you've lost opportunities, you feel so much has been taken. Glorify Jesus that at the return of King Jesus, restoration is better than compensation. King David offers this half-hearted attempt at compensation, but King Jesus will restore. Every injustice will be made right. Oh, I like this uh, Christian music artist, David Crowder. I love this lyric in one of his songs. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. He will restore. Paul says it in Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, not even worth comparing with the glory that's be revealed to us. Everybody's looking for compensation. Everybody's suing each other, looking for compensation. Well, in a, in a dreadful case, in a civil case where, I don't know, some terrible uh, thing happened and, 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 and some evil company knew that they had a toxin in their product and it was giving people cancer and the kid dies of cancer and so they're settling the civil. So, so what? So, the, so, so there's some compensation to that family. It's not going to bring the kid back, right? So who can make that right? There's only one king who can make that right. And he will restore. Side note, verse 30, Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let, let Ziba take it all. I'm just happy you're back since my lord the king has come safely home. Isn't that something? I don't even want half it. Let him have it all as long as you're back. Do you wonder if, this is a total side note, do you wonder if his other son Solomon heard that and thought, I'm going to file that away. If there's ever a dispute when two people can't agree, I'll split it halfway, and the one who says let him take it all probably shows me their heart I'm going to file that away if it ever comes up a custody battle. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Finally, to those mature in the faith. We're getting to, this is the third one. For those who are beginning to feel the effects of human weakness and frailty, we get the case of Barzillai. Barzillai. 
And this shows us reward versus resurrection. Reward versus resurrection. Or appreciation versus resurrection. Now we meet this marvelous man, Barzillai. Remember him? I, I had so much I tried to cover last week, I skipped over a lot of these characters. Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim where he went, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Thankfully, the narrator, verse 32, reminds us. The narrator is kind enough to jog our memory of who this guy was. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. I am pastorally sensitive to the fact uh, that there are folks here. Uh, let me just say this. He was a very aged 80. There's a young 80, okay? And there's a very aged 80. It's just pointing out that Barzillai was a very aged 80. But hold on to that thought. A marvelous man. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. Uh, you say, well, that was easy for him to do. It was rich. No, it, it was putting his life on the line. If he is going to supply, you're aiding and abetting the fugitive king at that point, and he didn't care. He was loyal to God's anointed, when it would have been very easy in all those 80 years as a wealthy man. Are you kidding? As a wealthy, a very aged 80-year-old, isn't that the time to put your feet up and to say, I'm not getting involved in this politics anymore. I'm not getting involved in this fight anymore. I'm not getting involved in all this, whatever, and just, just well, but this is God's anointed, and God is at work, and Barzillai's like, I'm still in the fight. I'm going to, I'm going to, for righteousness, for the kingdom, I'm going to share the good news, whatever it is, right? He's willing to do it, willing to risk it all on David. Now comes time for reward, and the king will reward. King David will reward. The king said to Barzillai, come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. You're going to live at the king's palace. It's going to be a whole new life for you, Barzillai. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I get it, you're offering a whole new life, but it, it's too late. The bell curve of my life. I, uh, there was a time when I would have loved this, but I am this day 80 years old. I, he points out he no longer has the strength for all that, you know, all that young people are into these days. He says, can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Besides the rich food of the palace, be too much for my stomach. And I, my taste buds and I, my palate isn't what it used to be. Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Besides, my hearing is no longer what it was. Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? All the pleasures of the palace, they'd be wasted on me. And he adds, lastly, something that is, I think, of great concern. I've heard many in our church, as they've grown older, they do not want to be a burden to other people. You'd be surprised how many times I hear that. That's the chief concern. I don't want to be a burden. They've served God and served others their whole life. They don't want to be a burden. And Barzilla is no different. This marvelous servant. Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the King? Beautiful. Marvelous man. This is a touching scene. Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the King. Why should the King repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. Beautiful. You go on, King. He does ask, just take my son. Now that is beautiful. What a prayer of this life well lived. Uh, let me die in peace. Just let, let it be that my son could go on with the king. That's literally the prayer of many Christian parents. Let my son journey on. Well, you've got all this riches, you've got all this reward, king, good for you. 
And you can offer all this reward and you can offer all these pleasures, but what comfort is that when you don't have strength to enjoy it? What Barzillai needs is not just appreciation. It would be nice if everybody gets appreciated before they die at the end of their life. You know, yes. It would be nice like Barzillai to get some reward, fine. But all David, all King David can offer is music and feasting and joy. But the one thing he can't do is the one thing Barzillai needs. He can't extend Barzillai's life. But praise God, our Jesus can. You see, by way of contrast, he offers not only reward, but resurrection. And resurrection is better than reward. Resurrection is better than reward. Jesus told a grieving Martha, you'll recall, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I think it's worth pointing out that the Jordan River is often used as a symbol for death. When you come to the point of death, think about it, with King David versus King Jesus. With King David, when you, come to get, when you come to that Jordan River, which is so often used as a metaphor, crossing the Jordan, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand, the promised land is over there. Who's going to guide me across Jordan's waters, right? It's this metaphor for death. Isn't it something? When you uh, come to the Jordan with uh, King David, you're left. The king goes on, but you go home to die. But when you come to cross that Jordan with King Jesus, he's come to take you with him to live forever. Not, I leave you, you go home to die, you come with me to live forever. He says in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms, I go to prepare a place for you. King Jesus can do what King David never could. That's what I came to tell you this morning. King David, who doesn't fully forgive and cannot act justly and cannot give life. Everyone who puts their hope and their trust and their faith in King David, I'm sorry, is going to be disappointed. They're going to one day be put to shame. So look to Jesus who does forgive. He doesn't offer just parole. He offers pardon. He doesn't just offer compensation. He will restore. And he doesn't just offer a few rewards. He offers resurrection life eternal. And everyone who puts their hope in Jesus will never be disappointed. Let's pray. God, grant that we might put our hope back in you, Jesus. For believers, our hope tends to migrate. It tends to shift to places that we have no business putting our hope in. Grant, God, that we might have the grace to put our hope right back where it belongs, squarely and completely on you, King Jesus. Thank you that you can do what no earthly king, even the best of, like King David, could do. Lord, forgive us who are at the same time justified before you, yet sinners. And yet you love us and you pardon us and you will restore. Thank you for your grace. I pray that you were glorified in this text and, 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 and glorified in our hearts and that you will continue to be glorified. And if there's anybody here who's not yet a child of the king, that today would be that day. That they would realize today's the end of their searching. They have found in you, Jesus, the place where their heart's true home belongs forever. Grant us the good sense to turn to you. 
We give you thanks. We give you praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope the invitation's clear. I ask you to stand to your feet at this time. You know, if you need to...